This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. In this episode, I will be talking with Dave Lepore on his book, Time Patterns in Big History, Cycles, Fractals, Waves, Transitions, and Singularities, independently published in 2020. Dave Lepore researches, develops, and applies science principles in environmental issues, big history, evolutionary trends, and particle scattering. He has over 30 years of experience at Argonne National Laboratory in the development of scientific analysis, software training, and model. Uh, Dave Lepore, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Now, we usually like to begin our interviews by asking our guests, tell us a little little something about yourself and the backstory behind writing this book. Yeah, uh, I have a background um, studying uh, physics and computer science, but I've been mostly in in environmental science work and uh, some oil exploration, kind of applying uh, some physics, uh, nuclear and laser technology. Uh, But uh, around um, 2002, I saw this paper in one of those journals uh, by uh, Theodore Modis um, technological forecasting and social change kind of about this big trend in uh, you know history um, and it really fascinated me I thought it was very bold um, and I thought well what can I do um, that led to a path uh, for me getting involved in various things uh, first thing I looked at is uh, trend in in physics discoveries uh, because that was a trend that seemed to be, uh, coming to an end uh, at the end of the um, 19th century, uh, but um, it kind of it slowed down uh, after uh, it reached its peak kind of um, in the 30s and 40s. Um, and so I went on in, in big history and kind of interested in environment, energy, uh, and technology. Um, and uh, I got involved with uh, writing papers in big history. And then um, in 2020, I, was involved with two books, this book uh, that kind of I had been working on for like a decade, um, kind of compilation of various papers, and then um, a compendium of of papers uh, that I helped edit with uh, Andre Karteyev of um, of Moscow State University. Um, And in there, we looked at uh, singularity trends uh, and uh, in big history. Uh, So that's kind of where uh, I, I come from. Yeah. Now, this is in this is written in the field of uh, what's called big history. Now, uh, could you for me for any of our uh, listeners who might not be familiar with the field, could you kind of give like a like a quick summary of what big history is all about? And we'll definitely go into more detail in the interview. Yes. Um, so David Christian kind of coined the term big history, but a lot of people have been looking at it kind of before and obviously after. But big history looks at a kind of integrated view of history. Kind of you can look at it as where we come from. Um, and so it starts with the Big Bang uh, about 13.7 billion years ago. Uh, the development of the universe, uh, galaxies, stars, planets. Um, and then it focuses in on Earth because that's the only place right now that we know that there's life. Uh, hopefully we'll find uh, other places and have another point to add to our data. Uh, but uh, then, uh, you know, life evolved, originated and evolved on Earth. Um, and then uh, humans hu- uh, humans went undergone evolution uh, kind of in uh, what we believed East Africa. 
Um, and uh, then eventually uh, civilizations occurred um, with large cities kind of in the Mideast, uh, India, uh, China, and then later uh, in North the New World. Um, and uh, so it's kind of the integrated study of this using the best evidence of, uh, you know, the cosmic life evolution, human evolution, and then, you know, history, civilization evolution. Yeah, you mentioned in your uh, introductory remarks, uh, Theodore Modi and his hypothesis of singularity. Can you explain this in uh, a little more detail? Because uh, many people, when they hear singularity, they think of certain things, but Modi, he he's uh, referring to a specific kind of phenomenon, correct? Yes. Uh, so it is this uh, kind of acceleration of, uh, of the speed of things. Um, and others have looked at various uh, parts of it. Uh, Ray Kurzweil uh, and John Smart have looked at the technological parts uh, of this, but this is more a uh, much broader, longer scale. And uh, so he uh, looked at various events that people uh, listed, including Carl Sagan, um, and kind of uh, went through it. It does seem to be accelerating. I always point to uh, the fact that, you know, if you... Uh, courses that you might have studied in high school or in college might have included uh, astronomy uh, and then biology and, and evolution of life, uh, anthropology and human evolution, and then various forms of, of history. Um, and those periods, at least uh, from those on Earth, um, you know, uh, Earth started about 4.5 uh, billion years ago. So I, I kind of say, you know, the last 5 billion years, um, human, uh, the, the line that led to humans kind of broke from the line that led to chimpanzees about 5 million years ago. Um, and civilization, you know, in terms of writing uh, and large cities, uh, started about 5,000 years ago. Um, and so you can kind of see, you know, just based on some of the courses that people have taken, you can, you know, uh, think about those durations, you know, 5 billion, 5 million, 5,000. The sequence is, you know, one one thousandth of the time of the previous one. Um, and so that's accelerating really quick. Uh, the next one in the sequence would be five years. Um, and so I do not think in five years, um, you know, there's going to be enough change that would you know, equivalent to what have been in one of those earlier uh, periods. Although the technological singularity people, like Ray Kurzweil and John Smart, uh, kind of believe that that it's going to be uh, true. So it's just a geometric sequence um, of shorter and shorter times, faster and faster paces, um, and uh, that eventually leads to a specific time. Um, and it's different than an exponential growth. Uh, exponential growth, um, you know, you can think of that doubling every certain period of time uh, with the singularity trend. Uh, it doubles kind of like every, you know, half the time to a certain point. Um, and so um, you can kind of uh, you know, see this in the population, global population of the Earth. Um, and that, you know, a lot of people did estimates of that. Uh, and in 1960, uh there was um, a forester kind of looked at the population uh, trend uh, and he saw that it had a singularity trend, not an, not just an exponential trend. And so he predicted doomsday in Nature uh, magazine journal uh, that it would be November 26, 2026. So we have a couple, a couple of years left. Obviously, he did not mean that it was going to be doomsday, but it just with the trend uh, that it was going right, and that trend broke uh, around you know 1970, right? So we're not you know population not following that trend anymore. So the idea is that you know yeah things have been you know accelerating kind of like the population, but just like that population trend, uh, it'll eventually probably slow down and move into something else. So uh, it's a singularity trend that usually focus on uh, the great you know acceleration, but it um, you know. Myself and many other people believe that, you know, it will never come about just like when Forrester never really thought that the population trend would you know, go to infinity. Thank you. Yeah, bringing in my uh, historian training about how so much contingency goes into how different processes and events uh, go into play. And sometimes you can't even really predict that uh, ahead of time. It's just there's so many different variables. 
Yes, it's kind of a great experiment, <laughs> and we don't know the results uh, yet of that experiment. Uh, we're kind of in the middle of it right now. Now, uh, how can geography, and uh, we're kind of getting back onto Earth here, uh, how can geography be interpreted within big history? Uh, you kind of talk about different patterns that emerge from uh, the study of geography from a big history perspective. Yeah, Uh Beginning of the book, I just wanted to kind of throw in uh, different ways of looking at things. Um, and so there's definitely various people that have done, uh, contributed uh, to that. Uh, one is Jared Diamond, uh, Germs, Guns, and Steel uh, book, uh, where he looked at um, the layout kind of of continents, kind of horizontal or vertical, north, south, or east, west. And uh, uh, one of the main things there is the propagation of germs and domesticated animals, um, you know, prefers the ones where it's horizontal. You, you can go around climate zones uh, and evolve that way uh, versus, uh, you know, Africa and uh, the Americas, which are a lot north-south, uh, and there's various barriers uh, in between uh, kind of um, between domestic animals or uh, germs, and so that's much uh, tougher to um, be compatible uh, with and grow in there. Um, there's also been uh, other studies of various, uh, for example, fractal coastlines. Uh, one of the hypotheses is that, uh, for example, Europe um, has a very highly irregular uh, coastline in there, uh, which kind of helped uh, kind of keep it a little bit, you know, separate, not not unifying, as opposed to, you know, someplace um, like China, which had, you know, one coastline. Uh, but a, a large interior plane, um, and so that uh, tended to more unify. There's definitely a lot of, you know, uh, dynasties and movement uh, in there, uh, but it does not have the irregularity of uh, Europe, which really kept, you know, uh, them from uh, integrating into one country and kept competition uh, kind of uh, moving. Uh, and so I kind of look at, um, you know, what, uh, one of the uh, things that I had looked at uh, that was mentioned by Jack Goldstone uh, is uh, in his book, Why Europe? Um, it's a big question of why did the kind of industrial revolution take off in um, in Europe, or Western Europe, while m most of the technologies had been kind of invented uh, elsewhere, including China, um, in terms of you know paper and steel, um, a lot of other things, gunpowder uh, in there. Um, and so, you know, that's a, a big question. And he pointed to the fact that, you know, it kind of came together in uh, in England, uh, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, with kind of a mix of society that was kind of ready for it and kind of integrated. There was the, you know, investors, the scientists, the technicians, um, that really kind of met and, and discussed uh, things and the uh, innovations were uh, coming in quick enough so that it kind of cre created a, a positive feedback uh, in there. And, you know, the development of the steam engine, uh, James Watt, is definitely one of this combination of knowing people who knew the science, uh, the technology and, and the machining of it. Uh, but also the people who would invest in it and the people who knew what kind of problems could be solved with it. Uh, it was a big kind of feedback mechanism uh, and to kind of get that going. That's good. Thank you. Yep. Uh, now, you also talk about different uh, patterns in time. And one example you give is geometric timescales. Uh, can you explain that for our listeners? Yes. Um, so... With this, this pattern of acceleration, uh, you can think of, um, you know, the geometric timescales I already mentioned, the 5 billion, 5 million, 5,000 years. Um, and so uh, when I teach a short course on, on big history, um, you know, I like to make that re relevant. Um, and you can think of um, kind of a human life, an individual, each individual. Uh, we have kind of a, a geometric time scale kind of expanding. Uh, if you look at uh, the development time, uh, pregnancy, nine months, um, and then multiply that by three, go, go to about, you know, one year, one and a half years where you're walking and talking, uh, somewhat independent. Another factor of three on that, uh, you're in uh, beginning of formal school, socialization. 
Another factor of three, uh, you're at uh, kind of the end of high school, kind of entering a, adulthood there. Uh, another factor of three is the working life, um, you know, kind of from 20 to 60. Um, and and you know, obviously each one of those boundaries is flexible, right? So it's just kind of an example of how to think of an individual life on a log scale. And so a lot of people say, unfortunately, it doesn't extend for another factor of three after you retire, but uh, they, people are working on that. But uh, I think that is a good example of kind of tying a geometric time scale uh, to someone's uh, view of, of their life or someone you know, else's life and then can project that and see how uh, things might have, uh, how that applies to a larger time scale of big history. Thank you. Yeah. Now, getting slightly back to the singularity question, you talk about different growth patterns, and let's talk about uh, each one. You did mention one, exponential, briefly. Uh, can you go into a little more detail about, about that, or do you have any more uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, so exponential is... Uh, the easiest example is you know, interest on money in a bank, right? Um, and so that will double, uh, you know, for a given interest rate, right? It will double for a certain period of time. So, for example, um, if you have 10% interest, uh, it'll double every seven years, kind of. Um, and so that's quite, a, you know, simple to think about uh, if you invest your money and kind of think about the future uh, or you know, pay a mortgage uh, type of thing. Um, and so exponential is just that the um, growth rate is proportional to what's there, right? The amount of interest you get is proportional to the amount of money you have, right? And so uh, that continues to grow. Um, the hyperbolic or this geometric sequence is very closely related to an exponential uh, in terms of the math, but a tremendously different type of behavior. Uh, and I think that's what's very interesting in this. And in fact, um, this was pointed out in the 1970s uh, by Manfred Eigen, uh, who had been involved in uh, you know looking at biology and evolution. I believe he received the Nobel Prize in chemistry. Um, and so uh, he said uh, in evolution, uh, you know, the rate of growth is not just in term, you know, general and is not just proportional to what's there, uh, but is proportional uh, to the amount of learning that has occurred up to that time, which is proportional to uh, kind of the, the current size. Um, and so uh, he said the growth is uh, pretty proportional to the square of the amount of people or organisms. Uh, you can think of a hyperbolic bank, which I made an analogy, um, and uh, that would be where the interest that you get is proportional to the square of the amount of money that you currently have. Uh, and at first it's very, very slow. <laughs> um, and in fact, in the, the example that I had, if you invest in this bank, um, you really get bad returns until the last day, the last two days, uh, where it pretty much goes to infinity. And obviously the bank would go bankrupt on that day. So I, I'm not sure if I would actually invest in a hyperbolic bank. Thank you. Now, probably the most uh, common uh, or the most basic growth pattern is linear, I believe. That's what you uh, described? Yes. Um, so uh, a linear growth would just be, you know, something proportional to the amount of, of the time that you, you have. Um, you know, a you know, if you, any of these curves, if you look at small enough segments, are going to look linear. Um, just kind of things, you know, growing uh, with linear, you know, with time, you know, every two years it grows, you know, so much independent of uh, what's uh, there. Um, so, um, you, you know, we can look at um, growth um, in plants or um, various uh, companies maybe of a linear growth, a, a certain uh, uh, number of um, you know uh, growth inches or, or money or whatever per time, uh, so it's very kind of straightforward, um, not 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 too exciting in there, but um, very good. 
So one of the things that um, makes it a little bit different when you think about uh, things is that these usually these linear growths, usually over a long period of time, demonstrate some other characteristics. Um, for example, uh, if you look at um, the, the movement or the transmission of gossip, um, you know, first one person uh, tells uh, another person, um, and so you might think uh, that that would be linear, you know, uh, the next person tells another person and, and so on. So that would be, you know, more linear growth. The, the, the number of people that know a piece of information would just be proportional to time. However, um, you know, if one person uh, tells, you know, a couple of people and those couple of people tell, you know, two others, uh, now you're at four and then the next stage you're at eight. Well, now you're beginning to go in an exponential rate, right? For every single time step, you know, the number of people that would know would double. Uh, but eventually, um, you know, gossip only goes within a certain amount of crowd, uh, a finite crowd size. So eventually it would kind of reach a saturation point, right, where someone uh, would tell two people and one of those two people would say, well, I already already know that. Right. So it's nobody really knew. So that kind of stops the exponential growth. Um, and then eventually, you know, people would start telling the two, their two people and both of them would say, we already know there's no no one else that everyone knows that. Right. So completely saturated. So that's that's kind of like a logistic kind of growth pattern uh, that's seen in, in you know, gossip uh, or in market growth where there's, you know, early on, you know, a company starts to grow kind of uh, linearly and then kind of exponentially and then it, it, they begin to see it kind of slowing down and eventually saturating as they kind of reach their uh, market potential um, and so uh, you know a lot of these curves do show different behaviors if you look at them in different time scales uh, but a lot of people have looked at the logistic um, uh, growth um, and um there was uh, Cesar Mar Marchetti uh, looked at a lot of these uh, growth patterns um, in like the 70s, uh, including some uh, in the 80s. Uh, but he said, you know, it doesn't only apply to markets, but also to ideas uh, that are out there and to technologies. For example, he looked at energy substitution. Uh, he looked at the efficiency of the steam engine as a function of time. Um, and so that gave me uh, the idea uh, to think about the, um, the development of physics ideas. You know, how many discoveries were made at a certain period? Uh, and so, again, uh, that started out relatively uh, slow, uh, kind of uh, uh, with uh, Galileo and Newton, uh, you know, huge contributions, uh, but they kind of laid the groundwork. But once the uh, foundation was set, then people could build on that really quickly. And then it kind of saturated. Um, they really, you know, they, they discovered that area, but they built new tools uh, and they found new areas to explore, new niches to uh, develop. Um, and so the whole process of discovery of physics kind of went that way, you know, you know, gravitation mechanics first, and then, you know, more and more details as you get the electromagnetic uh, uh, effects uh, and thermodynamics. Um, and then it kind of reached its peak kind of in the uh, 20s, 30s, 40s uh, with quantum mechanics, uh, relativity, uh, and nuclear uh, technologies uh, or nuclear science kind of going in there. Um, and so, you know, along the way, a lot of people predicted, you know, this is going to be the end of physics. You know, we're going to, we know everything, you know, including at the end of the 19th century, there was a lot of people who thought that. Um, and when, you know, that golden age was reached, they, they revitalized the whole physics and rewrote a lot of it. And then it kind of slowed down a little bit. You know, after that, there was a lot of particle physics, high energy physics that, that was looked at. Um, and I started to go into that area. Um, and it just really wasn't for me. Uh, there were, you know, uh, the, the experiments are huge. Um, and uh, I had a hard time kind of in that environment. And I really appreciate the people that continue. But uh, I worked on, you know, looking at... Uh, 
uh, detectors that would find the Higgs particle uh, and model those before they were built. Um, and that was in the early 1980s. Um, and they didn't find it to 2012 after a few generations of particle detectors and accelerators. Uh, but I'm very glad that they continued uh, and to find that, whereas I went on to other things. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. so these uh, time patterns, they're not mutually exclusive. They actually work uh, together and sometimes in parallel with each other. Yes. Uh, so there's different timescales of, of things that uh, happen. Uh, so sometimes uh, you might see uh, uh, some cycling or some exponential growth as some new area is found. Um, then that might turn into logistic uh, growth. Um, and then looking at a larger scale, uh, that logistic growth might just be one part of, you know, a larger uh, type of growth. And so um, what we call is nested patterns. Um, and so looking at physics, there were nested logistic transitions, logistic growth, right? One field would develop, you know, uh, gravitation and mechanics, um, but that would open up new fields for people to explore. So... Uh, the transition occurred in one field, gravitation, but opened up another that then grew at a logistic. And then when you step back and take a look at the whole picture, you can see the overall logistic pattern of all those, you know, smaller timescale uh, patterns in there. So nested uh, patterns uh, definitely is part of that. And also when you look at smaller scales, you can see uh, various things in there. For example, in population, it looked like it was an exponential growth um, kind of in recent times. Uh, but if you step back, take a longer look at it, you can see that, yeah, it's just a, a sequence of exponentials that kind of more indicate that it's kind of this hyperbolic uh, type of uh, of growth. Very good, thank you. Yeah. Now, uh, what is the theory of uh, panarchy? You mentioned this in the book. Yes, uh, that is very good, and that really fits in uh, here. Um, there was um, a, a group, uh, Howling, uh, was a, a part of that, um, and instead of a hierarchy, uh, you know top-down type of approach or, you know, bottom-up, you know, everything comes from the bottom and bubbles up. Um, they looked at ecosystems um, and uh, they uh, uh, saw that information went both ways, right? From the large system to smaller scales, uh, also from the smaller scales uh, up, up above and kind of all these, you know, interacting systems, right? A very complex uh, system of interacting parts at multiple scales from the ecosystem to the organism, to the cells and, and bacteria and decomposers um, and also different time scales. And so each one of those kind of, you know, operates somewhat independently, but it has contact with the higher and lower, lower levels. Um, and so those will undergo kind of somewhat cycles of finding, you know, new opportunities to grow. Uh, it will grow in there until it reaches kind of this saturation. Um, maybe it'll grow uh, since that it overuses the resources. Uh, and if it overuses the resources, it will eventually collapse releasing uh, the resources for, you know, higher and lower levels to use. And then uh, it might reorganize um, and find a new way uh, to grow and repeat the cycle. Uh, and so this occurs at uh, many levels. Um, you know, ecosystems have their own uh, life. You know, after a fire, they will, you know, start at a basic level and then mature. Um, but they have enough uh, ecosystems have enough feedback generally uh, so that they will not overshoot, right? There's positive feedback to begin with to continue the growth, uh, but then there's some negative feedback, right? So that they don't uh, overgrow uh, and so they can evolve or develop uh, into this uh, mature uh, system. Uh, thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, this actually reminds me of uh, the field of morphogenesis, and especially in the social and historical sciences, they talk about that, like how societies have different levels and there's different dynamics, like the whole structure and agency uh, debate, but it's like how they fluctuate between each other on different levels of society and all that. And I believe it was also modeled off uh, biological research, uh, Margaret Arch, Margaret Archer. It was just, it was really fascinating what you were talking about there. It reminded me of. Yeah. Um, I just remember Gunderson was the other person kind of be, with Holland in, in Panarchy. And they, they did look at, you know, they, they discovered this in ecosystems and then looked at the broader picture and say, yeah, you know, this is kind of what goes in in various complex systems, right? And so one of the things that, that I tried to look at in the book early was, you know, kind of how does this apply to uh, an individual and then kind of, you know, work up uh, to larger levels. So, I looked at um, kind of the resting patterns, right? It's kind of uh, our ability to, um, you know, after some growth and learning, you know, take a take a little bit of a break uh, and figure out what's going on uh, and integrate it into the rest of us, uh, you know, integrate that information and then move on, you know, figure out if there's a better way of going uh, and at different time scales. So, um, I started with, you know, a day, um, and obviously we have, you know, one third of our day pretty much is this resting period, which is, you know, quite quite long uh, considering, um, you know, we, all the other time we really want to crunch as much in there, uh, but it's really is required, right, to integrate all that information and recover, um, and so it's kind of in that panarchy cycle, right? We learn during the day, we grow. Um, you know, we use the resources uh, of our body, you know, we replenish with food and then we replenish, you know, with uh, sleep and we're ready to go the next day, uh, most of the times at least. Um, and then uh, there are other uh, periods, for example, in the work week, right? Uh, we work generally uh, five days out of seven uh, and then two days kind of um, not uh, network and we could do other types of work but kind of hopefully more refreshing um uh, recreational hobbies or whatever and so that again is you know you don't want to have something that just stresses out all the time right we want that capability of you know looking back seeing if things are going uh, okay and and dropping things if, if things are not uh, going the way that uh, we're looking so then that continues in terms of the seasonal uh, kind of holidays um you know years taking vacation um you know changes uh in uh, life in terms of uh, jobs or relationships um, and that kind of covers you know the life cycle then the question was well does, does that can uh, continue into um, you know society kind of like as as you say um, and so uh, we looked at some of the cycles in there and there was one um, in a book by Peter Turchin who looked at uh, this predator prey model um, and you might think why talk about predator prey when we talk about individuals and resting in civilizations but um, you know those are uh, ecosystems again uh, that do show these oscillations um, and uh, if you have uh, for example um, uh, rabbits and foxes uh, in there uh, and so the rabbits eat the grass and the foxes eat the rabbits um, there might be an equilibrium uh, where uh, there's a certain amount of rabbits that eat the grass and take uh, all that uh, resources and the foxes then eat, you know, sustainably eat the, the rabbits. Uh, but usually it's not in, in equilibrium. Uh, and if it's not, it will go through these uh, cycles over time where uh, foxes uh, might uh, increase uh, and get too many. So they die off and the rabbits, uh, you know, increase. Um, and so uh, that that cycle time is kind of related to the birth and the death rate of the rabbits and, and the foxes. And so he just kind of applied it. Well, what if you put in, you know, human uh, birth rates uh, and death rates, which you know pretty much the same? 
Um, and uh, he came up with kind of a period around uh, 375, 400 years or something like that. Um, and there are, uh, you know, indications uh, that, you know, that is uh, somewhat of a, a typical long range uh, kind of dynasty or civilization uh, lifetime. Um, it's not exactly, you know, clear. There's no, uh, uh, you know, clear uh, definitive relationship or model for that. Um, he did create a model um, and kind of exploring that. Uh, so at first it was just to recognize that uh, this might be, so it's a hypothesis and he made model. Uh, and kind of one of the things he was kind of indicating is that, you know, there's two groups of people that he put in, kind of the, the workers uh, and the elites. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, Kind of, there's a, a trade-off between them, uh, and eventually uh, the elites might gather, you know, a lot of the resources, um, and with some delays in there of the consequences uh, of that, um, the workers might not, um, uh, you know, thrive as much, uh, and so there, this uh, gets out of equilibrium and, and kind of uh, continues this cycle. So. I think there's, um, you know, a lot of these models, like you say, um, that look at what might be going on um, in uh, civilizations or societies or uh, smaller groups. Um, and a, a lot of the ideas, you know, came from, you know, ecosystem modeling, where they could actually, you know, make some of these uh, measurements. Thank you. Now, uh, what are uh, countries? TF uh, waves. Uh, I've heard this term uh, several times before in the big history uh, field, and you talk about this in the book. Yes. Uh, so um, he was a, a Russian, um, I believe, in the um, early 20s, uh, kind of looking at business cycles um, and kind of in a 60 to 70 year range. Uh, and it, uh, it seems to be tied to the introduction and development of new technologies. Um, and so the idea is that um, when things kind of slow down in business, um, you know, people are beginning to, to think about other ways of, of doing things uh, and some, some science might be coming up. They might develop it uh, in a, a new technology and it takes a while to, to do that. Um, and then once, uh, you know, it takes like, like a shakeout period, right, to figure out what technologies are going to survive and, and work. Uh, but once that has been kind of established, well, then, you know, on the logistic curve, then you can, you know, quickly uh, kind of grow uh, until it gets to a saturation. So it's kind of related to a business cycle logistic growth pattern, uh, just of general groups of technologies. Um, and so that's in the, uh, you, there are uh, other um, cycle periods and different names for uh, waves, but uh, this one is kind of in the 60 to 70 uh, year period. Uh, so um, somewhat of a, you know, a full generation, uh, human lifetime uh, type. Uh, and I know, um, Others have uh, kind of taken a, a look at that. Um, the one thing that I looked at was uh, in the U.S. history. Um, you know, there was uh, you know very short cycle. Uh, if you look at since World War II, um, there was a you know, oscillation between uh, Democrats and Republicans uh, that has been. Uh, the pattern has been broken twice now. Uh, and when I wrote the book, it was only broken once, uh, but it used to be uh, two terms of Democrats and two terms of Republicans, um, you know, from uh, Truman uh, all the way uh, through Obama. Um, and uh, the one period that was different was um, the uh, 1980 election. Um, with Carter and Reagan, uh, but it then resumed because there was four years Democrat and 12 years uh, Republican. So it went back on schedule and work. And so right now we are in one of those strange times. Uh, the the um, 
2020 election was one that kind of broke that pattern, uh, maybe indicating something's going on. But so that was a 16 year cycle. Uh, and then I looked back, you know, take a step back. Um, and so that was while the U.S. was kind of in a global leadership role, kind of after World War II. But uh, asked then, um, you know, when were the, you know, kind of the, uh, what are regarded as the important presidents uh, in the U.S. history? Um, and so it kind of went, um, you know, Washington, Lincoln, and Roosevelt, uh, FDR with uh you know, Theodore Roosevelt in between and Jackson kind of uh, in there. Um, and kind of the, the periods between Washington, Lincoln, and FDR, kind of that 72-year uh, period. Um, and so I looked at the rankings of the of the presidents from historians, and I know that changes over time, right? Uh, presidents uh, 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 regard kind of increases and decreases as historians see, you know, what the impact was, right? And it's not clear right, right after that they're they're done, uh, the presidents are done. And so the historians um, kind of uh, look at the big picture of that. And so, um, you know, it, it might be a 72-year kind of political uh, history in there. And the U.S. has definitely gone uh, through a major growth phase, right? It, it wasn't, um, you know, a country that was there to begin with. Um, and uh, and so it did go through growth uh, phases. Um, and so I kind of went through, you know, kind of what those growth phases might be. Uh, thank you. Yeah, and you also did some interesting thoughts along those lines with uh, Russian and uh, Chinese history as uh, well in the book. Um, now, uh, what kind of cycles and dynamics do religions and worldviews uh, experience? And you did mention this earlier in the interview a little. Yeah, um, there's uh, uh, Graves, um, uh, Clark Graves, um had started kind of looking into uh, this, uh, and um, Caesar Mar Marchetti had also looked at waves uh, in um, religions, specifically Catholicism, uh, but Graves kind of looked further back um, and kind of, you know, uh, eventually it was made into like this color, um, color code of uh, history of religion, but uh, kind of a, a oscillation between kind of a individual view to a, a larger view um, and um, kind of the dynamics of, uh, you know, individualization uh, and understanding of the world uh, that's out there. Um, and so uh, we can see that, you know, the that interpretation is that the religion evolved kind of with, um, you know, some of the technology and our understanding. Uh, and that makes sense. I mean, the, the religion is, um, you know, historically is one way we could kind of make sense of things that you really don't understand. Um, and a common, um, common view, right, that allows civilizations to operate together, right? If everyone has a a different view, um, you know, in the U.S., we say that's okay. Uh, but if you're uh, a country, you know, um, in the middle of, you know, people trying to attack you or whatever, you know, it's good to have, uh, you know, a common viewpoint. And in the U.S., the common viewpoint is kind of like the Constitution and the ability to have different views, right? So it's a different level of a common view, I hope. Um but uh, so, you know, religion kind of uh, went along with that. You can see different uh, parts kind of evolving uh, over uh, time. Um, I think that, you know, the more recent, you know, uh, times, um, you know, uh, religion was kind of, you know, a lot of people say religion was, uh, you know, the filling in the gaps of the scientific understanding. Um, and so, Th those gaps seem to be, you know, closing in as science found more and more. And I think in the, you know, the seventies are close there, you know, Steven Weinberg, uh, kind of in his book, first three minutes, uh, said that the more we understand the universe, the more it seems pointless. Um, and, uh, I think, you know, that that view has been kind of changing, uh, because, 
We do understand that um, our scientific understanding is only just a, a minor uh, part right now. There's a lot of uncertainty uh, in there. Um, and we haven't, you know, there's a lot to discover yet. And so I started a, um, reading a book uh, by Bobby Azarian, who's a neuroscientist, uh, and kind of, you know, articulating this viewpoint that, um, you know, when we take a look at it, uh, it ties back to big history in that, um, you know, life might not just be one random, you know, accident. Uh, it might be, you know, somewhat in the laws of physics. Uh, and people usually say that the, the second law of thermodynamics that entropy always increases is contradictory to the the origin and development of life, right? That was the viewpoint, at least at, at that uh, era early on. Um, and people made uh, progress uh, kind of in that, in saying that, well, um, you know, you look at some of these phenomena, tornadoes, hurricanes that occur naturally, um, they self-organize and they self-organize to make sure that entropy increases the you know fastest, right? It's the the way to really get rid of that energy gradient of the heat in the either in the ocean or in the air. Um, and so other people have taken this, uh, including uh, Nick Lane, uh, who's been studying the origin of, of life quite a bit and the metabolism uh, in that. Um, and the fact that uh, the second law, you know, maybe does not preclude uh, life and formation of uh, patterns, but also might help establish it, um, that the, the, the second law and its uh, sequence uh, not only does entropy in disorder kind of increase over time, uh, but nature uh, does not like those gradients. And so it will work uh, kind of quickly just even have some self-organization to create entropy as, at a faster and faster rate. And, um, you know, I've had various discussions on this. Uh, we're definitely proving that <laughs> as humans today, you know, using all this uh, oil and fossil fuels that have been around for millions of years and we're using it at a very good rate right now. Um, but um, uh, so, you know, even now, uh, kind of the views of, uh, you know, where we fit uh, and where life fits kind of in the universe is, is uh, you know, having some dynamics uh, and obviously, you know, be very good to, to see some evidence somewhere. And people have done some lab experiments, but really be good to, you know, see something out there uh, that's uh, where it happened uh, also. Uh, thank you. Yeah, this has been a real fascinating discussion. Now, how does like big history, or at least your approach to big history, approach some of like the major uh, transitions in history? And especially, I'd like to get to like the rise of agriculture and the transition to civilization, as you uh, uh, describe it in the book. Yes, um, and so um, we look at the the civil uh, development of civilization. Um, and so this was one of the early parts because um, history uh, is well, well, pretty much well documented. Maybe people have you know arguments on that, but uh, if you look at the history of human evolution, uh, you're working with a couple uh, uh, you know, bones and skulls and skeletons. Uh, and the real, you know, dynamics was kind of the development of the brain. And we don't have a good understanding, even of what's, you know, here now, very much less how it evolved, right? So that whole evolu human evolution, not as well, you know, documented. Um, evolution of life, um, you know, somewhat, I mean, we have DNA, and there's been a lot of good information come from that. But historically, um, it, you know, we have people's writings, and that's not always uh, the most accurate thing, but we also have ways of, of testing uh, some of those uh, with dating and artifacts and so on. And so that continues. Um, and so I looked at, uh, um, uh, there, there is some data to take a look at. So I looked at the, you know, ancient um, uh, and classical civilizations, uh, and kind of picked the leading edge, kind of, of the one most advanced one. Some people have looked at the whole group, uh, and I say, you know, focus in on the the leading edge because uh, that's what a lot of big history does. Looks at the leading edge of the complexity. 
Um, and so I looked at the, you know, the period at which uh, that, that civilization was kind of in the lead. Um, and so, you know, kind of starts out, um, you can either go to uh, Egypt or Mesopotamia, but that's kind of what I focused on. Um, you know, some of the early civilizations did last kind of for uh, a long time there. They, they had kind of stable uh, technology, they had you know, agriculture, and they were kind of figuring out how to uh, work that in. Uh, iron and the horse uh, kind of introduced, a, you know, a lot of uh, more warfare uh, and competition, uh, and that kind of sped things up. Um, and so around um, uh, 600 BC or so, there was kind of a rapid turnover of the, the leadership uh, in civilization uh, as those new technologies entered uh, and then people figured out uh, what to do. Um, and so the, the lifetime started increasing of those, eventually leading to Rome, which did not do a whole lot in terms of innovating uh, technology. I mean, they put a, you know, a lot of use in terms of you know, uh, cement uh, in buildings and so on, uh, but they mostly applied <laughs> the technology that they had to, uh, you know, uh, really expand and that expansion was kind of crucial because in the big cities in, in Rome it's it's not um, too stable right and when you have the large cities the problem is well you have disease you have a uh, waste in there you're going to have conflicts um, and so kind of in the cities um, you know it had to be supported by people coming in from from the outside uh, and so I took a look at um, you know look that was a transition that I could somewhat quantitatively take a look at. Uh, so again, it's this S curve or logistic kind of transition. Uh, and so you can identify the midpoint and the width like uh, of that. Um, and so uh, then I created some phenomenal, mm, phenomenological models, <laughs> uh, pretty much just system dynamics models of the major features of what's going on, right? Uh, and so in the civilization, it was kind of, uh, you know, you're going to have this hierarchy um, to support um, you know, this, the, the insurance, the insurance that you're going to have, you know, stores of food if something happens, or also militarily, you know, are you going to have the ability to withstand some, you know, attack from uh, outside? And that really kind of, you know, accelerates uh, a lot of the, um, the changes. Uh, and so I also mentioned uh, Peter Turchin, uh, who has various models in this, and his book, Ultra Society, you know, he talks about, uh, that, um, you know, uh, when the civilization formed, it caused that ultra society, as opposed to early on, uh, where humans were in small uh, groups uh, and kind of knew each other and who they work with. Um, and it, when it's a, you go into a larger civilization, you don't know everybody that you really have to interact with. So you have to have trust and have people, proxies uh, that will negotiate kind of for you in a, a large you know, hierarchy that can uh, organize that part. Um, and so he he's done uh, quite a bit of uh, work on that also. So then I took a look at the other uh, transitions that might have uh, occurred after, you know, the ancient and classical civilization in terms of uh, kind of the uh, Middle Ages uh, and then the development uh, kind of after the modern era uh, of 1500 on where things kind of sped up again, right? Um, you know, in terms of uh, the scientific revolutions and explorations really to find new things. Um, and then, you know, industrial revolution, you know, a little bit later, it took a while to figure out uh, some of these things. And, you know, textiles and agriculture were some of the early implementations of the technology, but it was kind of the steam engine that really created this, you know, this cycle, positive uh, cycle of the feedback that really led to rapid uh, growth. So I, I took a look at, at each one of those is trying to figure out what might be going on. And I, I mentioned the one about, um, you know, the industrial revolution of, you know, the um, the inventions coming from other places, including China, uh, coming within a, a shorter amount of time 
um, and really creating a critical rate of uh, innovation, of you know, breaking things, right? Um, and so we have that today, right? Uh, people want to break things uh, and create some new, th you know, new thing, creative destruction type of thing. Schumpeter uh, kind of said, um, and you know, if that happens, you know, slowly, one innovation. Uh, you know, might break things, you might put things together, and then you kind of lose that momentum. Um, and so that might have been uh, what was happening. Hopefully, we don't break everything all at the same time. And that's what I'm kind of worried about, <laughs> is if we continue this acceleration, that's what's, you know, going to happen. I've been in, you know, developing uh, software where for some of the environmental uh, tools um, and just rapid change and rapid change leads to things just breaking down. It's a continual battle uh, to uh, keep things uh, maintained and working. Um, and so I think, you know, in terms of, of life, there's various stresses, uh, right, as you age and, and develop and, and find things out, but also change itself kind of adds a big stress uh, to life and just in general, right? A lot of people say change is good. Well, yeah, uh, to a point. <laughs> and um, uh, Tainter had um, a book on collapse uh, of civilizations um, in which um, or societies uh, in which uh, he looked at, uh, well, okay, complexity is, it can be good to some point, but eventually there's a marginal benefit of complexity, right? You don't wanna make it too complex, right? Where uh, things just start to collapse. And so I think we're, you know, somewhere close there right now. <laughs> um, uh, I know in the, in the IT business, I think it, it has, slowed down a little bit, um, things not breaking uh, as much as uh, they had been. Uh, thank you. Yeah, and uh, kind of building off the that last discussion, uh, you talk about complex adaptive systems and system sciences uh, through the book. Can you kind of explain that for our listeners who might not be as familiar with that terminology? But that, I know that's a real growing field right now. Yes. Um, so um, complex adaptive systems, uh, so systems, which means a lot of interacting parts with different functions. So, you know, a body is a system, civilization is a system, a cell is a system, uh, and complex meaning they have a lot of different parts, a lot of different interactions. Um, and adaptive uh, would mean that it has a capability of learning uh, and storing that information and passing that information on. And that's one of the, the keys. Um, and so um, each part of the system, there's called agents or, you know, people or cells or, um, you know, uh, countries. Um, and so they all interact. Uh, you know, complexity is very difficult to actually measure and somewhat uh, define. Uh, but essentially, these complex adaptive systems, they kind of go with a panarchy model, different levels of uh, scale in terms of time and spatial scale. But essentially, uh, in order, they, they do maintain uh, their organization, right? That's one thing that they uh, do. It's like the humans maintain their organization despite all the changes. Uh, and so in order to do that, uh, they need some energy flow, right? We need some food. Uh, civilization needs its oil and electricity uh, type of thing. Cells uh, need their, their sugars. Um, and so energy is necessary, but it's not sufficient, right? If you just throw some energy at something, it's not going to uh, necessarily spontaneously uh, go into a self-maintaining uh, uh, system. Uh, so you need some information maintenance, right? You need to know uh, what it is uh, that uh, you need, what organization do you need to maintain? And if something goes out of whack, uh, you need to know how to maintain that, either get rid of it or fix it or whatever, right? So need some information. So uh, in the the cell, you know, you can think of it as the DNA there and it responds to various things, the various repair mechanisms. Humans, uh, you know, uh, have various systems, but including the brain, uh, kind of on a conscious level uh, when uh, things go wrong. And societies have their various organizations that hopefully, you know, keep track of uh, things also. I mean, it's just besides the government, there's obviously markets and organizations and legal um, organizations out there. Um, 
And so also has to uh, maintain uh, an organization with inside the uh, environment that it currently uh, is at, right? Um, and so it has to compete maybe for resources, uh, but uh, obviously there's another way of, of uh, obtaining resources, not just compete, but cooperate or collaborate. Um, and so, you know, that has been, you know, a field of, of study that's definitely been looked at uh, in biology and uh, Peter Turchin's Ultra Society, that's his main thing is that we've learned to collaborate in these large organizations, right? Um, and he said that one of the main mechanisms uh, of inducing that collaboration is war. <laughs> Uh, and so let's hope that uh, that stops uh, at some point. And I think we're getting there uh, with you know the markets and collaborating on, on various uh, ways also. Um, but um, so getting back to the point of complex adaptive systems, you know they are at various scales. Uh, I think energy, information, the environment, and organization are four characteristics, and they usually have to be able to you know not only learn themselves but be able to innovate also uh, and uh, uh, you know, kind of evolve. Uh, and so a lot of people, uh, you might have heard of complex adaptive systems modeling, um, and so people use that. Uh, I've used that for a couple things. I took, um, you know, a course that they have at Santa Fe Institute. They have a lot of good things online uh, for that. We have a big system that I worked on uh, looking at uh, COVID, uh, where they had uh, three million agents uh, simulating Chicago, each person in Chicago, and each person was given, you know, their schedule, right? So the question was, well, how is COVID going to um, diffuse our, uh, through uh, this environment? And what are some of the key uh, parameters then uh, to take a look at? And how good did that actually model, uh, you know, what actually uh, happened? So, uh, I typically kind of look at complex uh, uh, adaptive systems, kind of a, a, kind of a, a model uh, to use, not a comp computational model. Although I have used that, um, it's just that uh, some of those models are very difficult to to track. Right? If you knew everything uh, of everyone in Chicago, or you know all the information about an agent, or if you looked at evolution, if you knew of every single organism, you still would not be able to really get a big picture of what's going on in there. Um, and so that's why I like to start, you know, kind of at higher level models uh, with a little bit of data, and then kind of hopefully move on to, to more specific or better yet, uh, find someone else who has done that research uh, and then include it. Uh, so it's kind of building on on others uh, that, uh, and it's just amazing what kind of uh, uh, studies that people have done and people have found and, and discovered. Always amazed by that. Uh, thank you. Yeah, the Santa Fe Institute and also the New England uh, Complex Systems Institute, I believe it's in New England, I know, uh, are like the two main uh, research institutes in the the field of complexity studies it's a real fascinating field but of course you know if you want to give yourself a migraine it can also give you that real quickly too <laughs> yes um there's also uh, evo devo uh evolution uh, development uh, group um that a lot of uh, peter corning uh, uh lead in in that uh, is involved with um and so yeah there's um i mean it just seems a you know these these institutes study a large range of phenomena, right? Not just you know big history or, or evolution or so, but I mean they they uh, look at what's currently going on uh, and scaling of things in in, in biology, and so uh, very fascinating studies that can be uh, kind of used or, or thought about and applied in other areas. Uh, thanks. Well, this has been a very, very fascinating uh, discussion. I'm sure we could continue for hours <laughs> on end about this, and no doubt we will be, especially at the big history conferences, uh, <laughs> no doubt. Uh, do you have any final uh, thoughts, uh, maybe touch on anything in the book that we didn't weren't able to get to in the, the interview? Yeah, I, well, one thing that... Um... 
uh, was the metaphor. I've been trying to figure out, you know, how to, you know, kind of convey some of these messages or whatever. So one thing I tried was the metaphor of, you know, rocket, you know, rocketing some something into orbit. Um, and I think, you know, if if people understand a rocket, it has a finite amount of fuel and it has to get up into orbit at a certain speed. And once it's there, it is stable. It need, you know, doesn't need any more you know, energy to move, right? It's self-sustaining. And um, you know, this is kind of what we have currently. We have this fossil fuel. It's kind of a gift from the past, right? We're using it. Hopefully we're using it to understand where we are and how we can you know, get to that next level of technology so that we're sustainable, right? And then once we're in, you know, that sustainability, well, then, you know, we're free to think of other things, just like, you know, the uh, rocket in the uh, orbit, it's free to do other things there. It doesn't have to worry about, um, you know, the energy for the motion. Um, so if anybody has any ideas of how to convey these ideas uh, better or uh, get them out, um, that, uh, that'd be great. I'd love to hear from uh, anybody who has any uh, feedback uh, on this. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate uh, the, the uh, uh, opportunity to uh, discuss this with you. Very nice. Yes, it was a great pleasure on uh, my part as well. Uh, we usually like to end our interviews by asking our guests, uh, what are you working on now? Uh, that's a good question. Um, so there's a lot of uh, I found out when I, I gave a talk at uh, Big History, I was kind of thinking that people had, you know, taken into account, you know, some of these uh, ways of looking at this acceleration. Um, and I, I had to take a step back because I got a little bit of feedback uh, on that. Uh, and it was good. It was good for me to take a step back, uh, actually put it together and kind of take a look uh, at what others had done uh, and to document that and uh, continually have debates uh, about this. Um, but also, uh, you know, I'd want to move forward on that by, you know, you know, looking more quantitatively at the energy flow at each of these stages. And I know that's going to be, you know, somewhat difficult to, to kind of estimate um, uh, these things. Um, and so I think, you know, that is uh, what I'm kind of uh, looking at. I'm uh, trying to think about another book, uh, kind of, you know, there's been a lot of books on big history narrative, um, you know, just kind of going from Big Bang to current day and then the future, but not a whole lot kind of on, you know, some of these patterns that are out there and what's driving it. Um, so what I call, you know, what else is there um, in terms of, uh, you know, building it up, building the models, you know, what are the evidence for the models? Um, and, you know, what is the meaning uh, of this? And of course, it's very speculative in terms of the meaning. Uh, but um, so I think there's a, a gap there. Uh, I'm not really too sure, but I'm having fun uh, putting that that together. Uh, so hopefully stay tuned. Uh, we'll see what uh, comes of that. Well, maybe when you finish some of that work, uh, we could have you back on the podcast and oh, we can talk good. about it further. All right. Very good. Uh, Dave Lepore, thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. All right. Well, thank you very much. Hopefully see you later. Good. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. Until next time.